What drives you? I mean, like, really, like, what is the thing that motivates you, it compels you, it pushes you onward and forward? What is that thing? I think a fairly common answer to that would be money. People think that money is a really good motivator. And money can be. I mean, they say that money makes the world go round. But I think money as a motivator and as a driver is actually, it's, it's quite fleeting. It's nice in a moment, but it, the joy or the satisfaction of it never really lasts. And even if you achieve or you start gaining more money on a regular basis, eventually that just becomes normal too. And way to illustrate that would be, if you look at the top of any field, whether that's entertainment, business, or sports, what those people put in, they could never actually be compensated for. Sports would be a good illustration for this because professional athletes, what someone like a Kobe Bryant would have put into basketball, none of us could have done. He would get to the gym hours before anyone else and just be working on dribbling patterns or shots or whatever. He had such a commitment and a drive for this that there's no way that money could have satisfied it. He has to have love for the game. He has to have a love for winning. I think when we break down drive, when we break down what moves someone and what compels someone, there are two primary motivators. I think that they are compassion or love, and I'm going to use those terms interchangeably, compassion or fear. And if we look at this even in normal businesses and in our places of work, every organization, every job in a way is there to help people. And so if you can properly align yourself with compassion and you are acting and moving and being compelled by compassion in your place of work, you are going, it's going to be noticed by those around you. It's going to help your own heart because you get to feel the joy of when you actually help someone. It's going to make you go further, longer, with way more joy in your place of work. Fear can be a motivator, and it can even motivate you to do things quickly, but it never keeps you there. It doesn't allow you to stay there with longevity, and it causes you to do things in secret, at dark, and with really bad motives. We're going to be looking at this in the passion narrative today, the last little bit of Jesus's life. We're actually going to start at the beginning of the last year of Jesus's ministry, and we're going to be looking at how Jesus was driven by compassion in everything that he did. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, by and large, were driven and compelled by fear. And so turn with me, if you would, to Luke 9, verse 51. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 842. As I mentioned, this is near the beginning of the last year of Jesus's ministry. The first year of his ministry was a year of preparation where he found his disciples and he began to teach and get 
known. The second year was the year of popularity. He really grew in popularity this year. And crowds and multitudes were coming to him. He was healing all of them. It was absolutely amazing. And the third year would be the year of opposition. He received a whole lot of opposition from the religious leaders of his day. He also did a lot of healing and teaching during this time as well. If you, so now we're in Luke 9. If you were to split the book of Luke into two parts, I think Luke 9.51 would be the dividing line. Something very significant happens in Luke 9.51. It's recorded, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. This is a very significant verse. This is the moment in the book of Luke where Jesus is setting out for Jerusalem where he knows that he is going to be crucified. If you were to put a, a picture to it, he's setting himself on the train track and he is going to his final destination. Now he spends a lot of time helping, encouraging other people along the way, but he is this is the moment in the book of Luke where he sets himself on that track and he is heading resolutely toward Jerusalem. If you flip forward a couple pages, you'll see in Luke 13:22 that he's continuing along this and it says that then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So here it's showing that he is still on his way to Jerusalem. He's doing all of these things, but he is on his way. And what is the author trying to convey? He has his mind on the cross. Even at this moment, he has his mind on the cross and he knows what's coming his way. I don't know if you've ever had an event, a really massive event, perhaps something like a wedding or a vacation that you're really looking forward to, and it, it becomes all-consuming to an extent. It's sort of like that, but this is in a negative way. This is, he is constantly feeling the pressure of this and understanding that he is on his way to his final destination. I imagine he felt scared. I imagine at times he felt alone because no one really understood what he was going through. But here is the amazing thing, is that he keeps going. He, keep, he is set out resolutely, regardless of how he's feeling. He had something compelling him. He had something driving him. Now, over from Luke 9, Luke 10 area, up until Luke 18, it's primarily Jesus eating with people, debating the Pharisees, healing people, and teaching people. That's a lot of what happens in Luke 10 to 18. But then in Luke 18, 31, something else significant happens. Here, Jesus predicts his death uh, for the third time, and his disciples just don't get it. So verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside. He took them aside. You ever have a conversation that's just too important to have in front of everyone? 
you have to take someone aside. He really wants them to understand the importance of this. And told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. Again, he knows that means that's his crucifixion. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know that what he was talking about. You could say that they were being blind. Now understand that there, isn't, there aren't coincidences in the Bible. So what comes up next is remarkable in many ways. Verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was, go- was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. This story is also recorded in Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, he adds the phrase, Jesus moved by compassion. That phrase is only used twice in the book of Matthew. It's one word, moved by compassion. Jesus, moved by compassion, said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. This is not by accident. Jesus is mentioning the cross. He's mentioning that he is going to die, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be insulted, mocked, and ridiculed. But he keeps going forward, and indeed we see that he is moved by compassion. Jesus is constantly moved by compassion. In Luke 19.28, after a little bit more teaching, and right before the triumphant entry, what we celebrated on Palm Sunday, it says, after this, after he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. That is to say, now is the time. Now is the time when it's all going to take place. Again, right after that is a triumphant entry when they're all yelling out, Hosanna, save us, save us. They receive him as a king. Shortly after that, we see the Last Supper that Brent's going to talk about in a few minutes. And Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Shortly after that, we see ourselves in the garden. It's by the Mount of Olives. Jesus went there continually to pray. And here he goes, and he begins to plead with the Lord in prayer. Now, I've had some passionate prayers in my life, but I have never prayed so fervently that I was sweating. 
Jesus was wrestling. He was wrestling in prayer. This deep sense of foreboding was coming to a boiling point. He, he went to his disciples and found that they were sleeping. He is so alone in this moment. But something, still, something kept moving him forward. What I find even more surprising is that the religious leaders found him in the garden. They were led by Judas. And though they were his enemies, when one of his disciples attacked and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, what does Jesus do? Moved by compassion, he heals his enemy. Just constantly being moved and driven forward by compassion. Very different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, we have to go back a couple weeks and to see what was driving them. But if we do that and we go back to the story of Lazarus in John 11, we talked about this a few months ago, if you remember, that Jesus did something so significant that it brought them to the tipping point with him. There had been murmurs about him, there had been letters written, there had been words exchanged, debates about whether or not he was who he said he was or what they should do about him. But when Jesus healed Lazarus, they realized that this is pretty serious. So John eleven forty seven, the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is a high council meeting. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Check this out. And the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They were afraid. They were afraid of losing their followers. They were afraid of losing their influence. They were afraid of losing their authority, their temple, and their nation. The Pharisees were driven by fear. So they plotted to take his life but they wouldn't do it in daylight. Jesus actually asked them a very compelling question. And going back to Luke, in chapter twenty-two, fifty-three, 53, Jesus asked, says to them, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see, Jesus was really popular. <laughs> He had a lot of people that really liked him and liked being around him. And we see in Luke 21, 37, that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all, all the people came early in the morning to hear him 
at the temple. Jesus was very popular, and they were looking for an opportunity to kill him and to take him and to arrest him, but they knew that if they tried to do this out in broad daylight, that there would be revolt, that the people, the people wouldn't stand for it. And so they had to do something sneaky. They had to do something underhanded. They had to do it in secret. Jesus mentions this is your hour when darkness reigns. He talks about light and darkness a lot throughout the Gospels. And one thing that we know is that those who are comfortable in what they're doing, they do things during the day because they're acting with integrity and so that they can do things during the day. However, people, when they know they're doing something wrong, they'll tend to do it at night. They'll tend to, tend to be underhanded and secretive about it. And when fear is done as a motivator, that's ten, that tends to be how things go. When they arrested Jesus in the garden, it was at night, done in secret. Afterward, they had another council meeting and they brought Jesus there. It's in verse 54 of 22. And this happens at night, in the dark, in secret. They then bring him to Herod, and Herod finds him to be innocent. All of this is wrong, and they know it's wrong. That's why they're doing it in secret. They want to get rid of him because they're afraid, and so they're willing to break and to bend their own rules to be able to do this. That's where their heart's at. And even though Herod and Pilate both found him innocent, and that he had done nothing worthy of death, it still got pressed forward. It's safe to say Jesus did things very differently. So we'll conclude the story with Jesus after the sentencing has been made. He endured lashings, beatings, whippings, mocking, ridicule, jeering, people spitting on him. He endured all of that, and he even carried his cross. How? How, how did he do that? In John 9, we see that he alone had the power to lay his life down, and he alone had the power to raise it back up again. No one could take his life from him. He lays it down willingly. So he is taking all of this. He's taking it all willingly. He has something else motivating him. He has something else driving him. We receive a hint of what this is in Hebrews 12 too where it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning shame. Jesus was not compelled by force. God didn't make him do it. He had a joy that was set before him. He had something else that was pushing him forward, and that was his compassion. That was his compassion for you and for me and for the people around him. It was by compassion that he went to blind Bartimaeus who said, I want to be able to see. And he was stirred with compassion to help him to be able to see again. It was by compassion that in the garden 
he healed one of his enemies. It was by compassion that he endured the cross for you so that you could one day have the opportunity to respond to him, to respond to the grace that he offers you. And to top this all off, it was by compassion that on the cross, he promised the criminal that was standing next to him, today, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Do you ever think about what it would be like for that man when he goes up to heaven? The angels stop him at the gate and they say, who are you? He's like, I'm, I'm I'm no one. Okay, what, what is the doctrine of sanctification? He's like, I don't know what that word means. Can you explain to me the Romans' road to grace? Uh, no. Well, then what are you doing here? And he said, the man on the cross had compassion on me. And guys, I am here today for no other reason than that. Because a man on a cross had compassion on me. We will someday be able to kneel before our king in glory because the man on the cross had compassion on you. This is what is offered to us today. This is one of the things that we celebrate on Good Friday. We celebrate that the man on the cross had compassion on you.